All right, well, this morning we are uh, going to wrap up our series on prayer. And uh, we've been looking in the book of Matthew, chapter 6, at what we refer to often as the Lord's Prayer. This is a model prayer that Jesus taught his disciples um, to give them instruction and to give them encouragement in how to pray. If you would turn with me, Matthew chapter 6, um, we're going to read through this prayer together. If you don't have a Bible, um, there should be a hardback one near you, and it's on page 811, and I'd really encourage you to go there um, because I want you to be able to follow along as we read through this together. As we look at this today, um, and as we come to the end of Jesus' prayer, um, we're going to be dealing with and talking about the, the concept of temptation. I think you know what temptation is. I think we all know what temptation is. Um, temptation is that thing that you hate that you love, right? It's that thing that you don't want to do that you really want to do. That thing that, that you keep going back to, and every time you keep saying you're never going to go back to it. And you keep telling yourself you're not going to do that, and then you find yourself doing it anyway. And it's that frustrating cycle you get in, that thing that just rips you apart and you feel like there's a war inside of yourself because you hate it, but you love it. And if you didn't love it, it wouldn't be a problem, but if you didn't hate it, you wouldn't care, and so you just keep feeling. Paul described it uh, in the book of Romans as, as a battle inside of himself. The thing I hate, I do. The thing I don't want to do, I do. The thing I want to do, I don't do. And, and he cried out in despair. He says, who will deliver me from this body of death? It's death that I just keep running back to this thing. And I'll bet you can identify with that, can't you? That there's a thing, or maybe it's things, or maybe it's a, a series of, of um, choices, or, or a, a series of temptations, that you, in one sense, would give anything to be rid of. And in another sense, the idea of not having it terrifies you. This is amplified right now at the new year as we're turning the page and we start thinking about resolutions. And we all laugh about them and we all act like, you know, in our cynical maturity, it's the silliest thing in the world. Nobody makes New Year's resolutions, but we all secretly kind of want to because there's this little part of us that knows there's that thing that if we could just change that thing, the freedom and the joy that we believe we could experience, but at the same time, we don't really want that's what we're going to talk about this morning as we look at this scripture together. So here's Jesus' model prayer, and we've read this several times, but I want to just go over the whole thing again. Matthew chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 5, and we're going to read through, to, to, through verse 13 today, and verse 13 is what we're going to focus on. So if you would follow along with me, Matthew chapter 6, excuse me, I think I said 5. Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. When you pray... You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who's in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. 
Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The word of the Lord. So far in this series, we've worked through uh, this passage and we've seen that Jesus is not telling us, memorize this prayer and repeat these words back. Not that there's anything wrong with praying words directly from Scripture, as long as we actually internalize them and mean what we're saying. Um, There's nothing wrong with using the words he uses, but there is a problem if we get into a place where we're just repeating mindlessly rote memorization uh, as if it was like a magic spell. But instead, Jesus has given us a model, a pattern for what it looks like to pray in a way that will lead us into a deeper experience of joy, a deeper relationship with God that will increase our effectiveness, not effectiveness in the sense of we use prayer to get what we want from God. Not that prayer is manipulation to try to get God to do what we want Him to do, but rather that we can have prayer that inspires, encourages, pushes us forward, That prayer becomes something we desire to do, that we run to, that we feel excited about, as opposed to feeling like a drudgery, as opposed to feeling like something we have to do, something we should do. I'm a Christian, so I'm supposed to pray, and we're distracted. Rather, Jesus says, if you understand and if you apply these principles, you can experience prayer in a way that transforms your life. And we saw from the very beginning that the first step is that we have to humble ourselves. That we have to come to God honestly, knowing who we are, understanding who we are, not presenting ourselves as something that we're not, not using prayer to try to draw attention to ourselves. And he he draws a contrast with those who would pray publicly in a way to try to, to, to gain accolades, to try to make other people look at them and say, wow, listen to that guy pray. His prayers are so amazing. But instead, to just strip all that away and just say, this is who I am. I understand who I am. In relation to God, I understand who I am. And I'm just going to be honest. And then through that, to be authentic. We talked about praying authentically. We're not trying to, again, leverage these magic words, but we're just saying what's truly, honestly in our hearts, where we're getting real with God. Because, as Jesus says, he already knows. So to put on a mask for him is the, the height of, of uh, I, I can't think of the word I'm thinking of, but it's horrible. There you go. <laughs> Fill in the blank. What was the word? Of, um, meaninglessness or something along those lines. It's just pointless. He's, he's God. He knows you. And then we saw as we moved on that he invites us to pray to our Father and understand as we're praying that we're talking to, yes, the God of the universe, the creator of everything, the holy, perfect, just God, and yet he calls us to relate to him as a Father. He loves us. And we can experience an intimacy with the creator of all things and at the same time understand that he is sovereign and in control of everything. And as we pray, we pray with the sense and the understanding that he is in control. And it's not about about what we want. That all of life is better when we submit 
to what He wants. And in doing that, we understand and we have hope that what He wants is what is best. Not just for us, but for the whole world. That all of history is a story that He's telling and that its ultimate end is the restoration and the reconciliation of all things to Himself. And so we pray with hope. And then we pray in dependence. And as He says, give us this day our daily bread, we understand that we have nothing without Him. Day by day, we're dependent on Him. And as much as we want to pray, give us this week our weekly bread, or give us this day our our decadely bread, we want enough to last us and to sustain us on and on. Why? Because we want to know that we've got everything handled and we don't want to be dependent on God. And Jesus says when we pray, we need to pray with an understanding that everything we have, every breath we take, is dependent upon Him. A few weeks ago we saw that Jesus encourages us to pray expectantly. To go to God, again, honestly, but with an expectation that because He loves us, because His will for us is good, that we can go to Him and ask boldly and persistently that He would be God and do things, miraculous things, that only He can do. That we don't need to be cynical. We don't need to pray with this idea that our prayers don't matter. They do. And He tells us to pray. And so we can pray with expectation. We saw last week that we can pray with forgiveness. One of the hardest human emotions to deal with. But because we've been forgiven, because He's poured His grace out on us, that as we go to Him and as we feel His forgiveness filling us up, that that forgiveness, that that grace spills out of us to others, even when it's hardest. And then we come to the end of his sample prayer, and in verse 13 he says this, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Having prayed all of this, that God's will would be done, knowing that he loves us, asking that we can forgive those who've sinned against us, Jesus then tells us to make sure that as we pray, we pray that God would protect us and deliver us from our own sin. When we talk about sin, it's a, it's a tough concept sometimes for us to wrap our heads around. Um, because as we said, we, <laughs> we have this love-hate relationship with sin. We all have sin, all of us. I don't, I don't have to, um, I, I, I doubt very seriously any of you are sitting there like, oh, this is an interesting concept. I wonder what that would be like to sin. Hmm. Um, this is not abstract to us. All of us have very real experiences of temptation, and, and we know that we fail in many, many ways. If you're a believer, if you've trusted in Christ as your Savior, one of the things the New Testament teaches us is that God's Spirit dwells within us. We refer to Him often as the Holy Spirit. And one of the things the Holy Spirit does is convicts us of our sin. What that means simply is this, that He makes us aware of both the presence and the severity of our sin. That God's Spirit in us lets us know, makes us aware of the ways that we fall short of obedience to God. That what we often refer to as our conscience And the Bible uses that word as well, but in many ways, at many times, what we refer to and think of as a thing within ourselves, our own sense of right and wrong, if you're a believer, actually, often, what that really is, is God. 
speaking to you and making clear to you ways in which um, you are not living in obedience to God. Now, as we talk about sin this morning, here's one thing that we have to keep absolutely crystal clear forefront in our minds. There's only one cure for sin. The only cure for sin is the gospel of Jesus Christ. No matter what we do, no matter how hard we try, no matter what uh, efforts or strategies or whatever we put in place, the only thing that could ever actually deal with the sin in our lives is Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus came to earth and did not sin. He faced every temptation and defeated it without ever giving in. And then he took all of our sin, past, present, and future, on himself and suffered the punishment for it on our behalf. The only way we can be cured from our sin, the only way we can be justified for our sin, the only way that a holy God can look on us with forgiveness, like we talked about last week, is through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's nothing we can ever do to cover over or to make up for our sin. And when we trust in that sacrifice, that justification is applied to us. That when God looks at us now, regardless of the sin that continues in our lives, what he sees is the sacrifice of Jesus laid over us. He does not see our sin. He sees Christ's blood on us. But that doesn't mean that we don't still struggle with sin. As long as we are human beings living in a broken world, in our broken human bodies, we will still have that war going on inside of us. We will still have both the Spirit of God pushing us toward what is right and our own human flesh pushing us toward what is against what is right. And that war will constantly be going on. And the irony, as we talk about prayer and we talk about knowing God more deeply through prayer, the irony of all this is that the more we know Christ, the more we recognize how unlike Him we are. The more, <laughs> the more you advance, if that's the word you want to use, in your Christian life, <laughs> the more aware you become of how unlike Jesus you actually are. I would have thought um, that, that the, the Christian maturity or becoming more like Christ would be like, like if you were to, to chart a graph, like an upward sloping line that goes from like, I'm pretty bad, and then I get to know Jesus, and the more I know him, the more I become more like him, and it would just walk straight upward. In my mind, from my perception, it's like almost the exact opposite most of the time. The longer I know Jesus, and the more I, I seek to know him, and the more I, I, the more I pray and the more I see his true character and who he really is, the more aware I become of my own sinfulness. Have you ever had that experience? 
you think that by this point in my life, I should be pretty much free from sin, and you look at yourself and you're like, I feel worse than I did when I first became a believer. Like, what is this? <laughs> and it's because by comparison, the more we know Christ, the more we see just how far short we fall. Things that we never even considered sins. And now we're like, oh, I don't want that either. How do we respond to that awareness? As we become more and more aware of our own sinfulness, how do we respond to that? I'd say most of us, and I'm including myself in this, respond in one of two ways, and I'm not saying that everybody responds one or the other. Most of us, it's probably a mixture of both of these at some point, depending on what the temptation is. But most of us, when we encounter temptation repeatedly over and over again, we respond either with a type of, of hedonism or a type of legalism. Let me explain what I mean by those terms. And if you're a stickler, these are not the exact definitions of these terms. I'm just using these terms to help guide the conversation. Okay, so um, I only say that because that's me. I'm the guy who would be sitting out there like, that's not really what that word means. Like, so now that I'm the guy saying it, I have to pretend that, anyway. Okay, um, here's what I mean by hedonism. Okay, um, when we hit temptation, a lot of times what we do is we just give in. We indulge in our temptation. Jesus says, uh, lead us not into temptation. We say, um, I, I'll, just, I'll just give in to temptation. And instead of deliver us from evil, we say, I'll just manage the outcome. I'll just deal with it. The desire is so strong in me, for whatever reason, that I'm just going to give in. And even a lot of times, um, we have excuses we have reasons for this, right? Number one, we, we tell ourselves it's really not that bad. I mean, of all the sins I could be committing, this one, seriously, come on. Everybody's got one, right? This is, this is my thinking, probably not yours. Um, like, everybody's got that. This is just my thing. I mean, what, do you expect me to be perfect? Right? Nobody's perfect. I deserve this. With everything that's going on right now, with all of the pain, with all of the circumstances, with all of, the, I, there's, I at least deserve to have this one release, this one valve, this one outlet. This one's mine. And then we even go here, and this is bad because we, we, we use scriptures to try to help us with our sin here. We go, look, it's already covered. It's forgiven. Jesus died for all my sins, past, present, and future. So it really doesn't matter, right? The problem with that is that, yes, it's true. Jesus has died. We are forgiven. It is covered. That is true. But if you really understand the depth of what that means, for him to die and take your sin on himself, you really see your sin as the offense it is against a holy and righteous God? You'd hate sin as much as God hates sin. Jesus didn't die to free us to sin. He died to free us from our sin. Again, Paul says it this way. He says, how can we who are free from sin continue 
in it. It makes no sense. God doesn't, God doesn't give us instructions and rules so that we can try to be better. And then he gives us the gospel so that all those rules just go away and we can just live however we want. God's law, God's instructions are for our own good. If you're still in Matthew, if you look back to Matthew chapter 5, here's what Jesus said, same sermon. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Look, here's what Jesus is saying. Forgiveness, justification, is not given to us so that we can just go out and do whatever. God gives us instruction. God's, God gives us commands for our own good. The most joyful life we can live is a life lived in obedience to God. And we know this because when we give in to our sin, we suffer consequences for us. We just deceive ourselves into believing that we can handle the consequences, that we can manage the consequences. Now, thanks be to God. But for every failure, His grace still reigns supreme. That is true. But we are tempted at times to just give in to our temptation and we miss out on experiencing the depth of joy that is available to us when we obey. Now sometimes we go the opposite direction. When we're faced with temptation, instead of hedonism, we go to a type of legalism. And by that I mean this, we, we buckle down and we do everything within our own power to fight against temptation. Again, we would pray verse 13 like this, and God help us avoid temptation as we deliver ourselves from evil. Give us the plan, the strategy, the mindset let me put in place all the things I have to do, and in our own strength and in our own might and in our own power, we do everything we can to be good, to fight as hard as we can. And we set up all kinds of um, strategies, guardrails, hedges, accountability groups, all of our plans to make sure that we don't give in. And we will fight tooth and nail everything we've got with everything within us, with the idea that it's all up to me. And when I fail, I just have to try harder. I just need a new strategy because that one's not working. I just got to buckle down. This time I'm going to do it. This year it's going to be different. And we read books or listen to podcasts. <laughs> we even go to church with the idea that maybe this time there's going to be a strategy or a plan and can you give me four points to defeat this sin in my life. The problem with that is, I mean, number one, it rarely works, right? 
I mean, sometimes it works for a while. But ultimately, we're so focused on what we can do in our effort that even in running from our sin, we find ourselves being pushed further and further away from God as well. That we isolate ourselves and it becomes all about us. And even when we're doing well, even when we're avoiding sin, even when we're defeating temptation, we become so inwardly focused on what we're doing and how well we're doing that our relationship with God begins to suffer. Here's the crazy thing about both hedonism and legalism. As much as they look outwardly very, very, very different, they're really the same thing. They're really just two branches from the exact same tree. They're both all about having faith in ourselves. Either trusting ourselves to be able to discern what's truly important, what's a real sin and what's not that big of a deal, and trusting ourselves to manage the consequences, or trusting ourselves to be able to fight back against temptation and to fight against sin. And it's all about us. But look again at what Jesus says. And notice who's the subject of this sentence. Verse 13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lead us, deliver us. Who's doing those actions? It's God. Jesus is not telling us to pray that we'll be better, that we'll fight harder, that we'll deliver ourselves, because we can't. Jesus' prayer is to call out to the only one who actually has the power to defeat temptation and to deliver us from our sin. Now, I want to be careful. I want to be clear. I'm not saying that as we look at this and as we go through the rest of this, that we're passive in this. This is not to say, because this would just go right back to that first response, that we just sit back and say, well, I mean, God's the one at work, so whatever I feel like, I'll just do until he does something in me or through me or however you want to use the language. I'm just a marionette, and if he, whatever strings he's pulling. That's not what we're saying. Jesus' prayer here for us is to call out to God to lead us not into temptation. If he's leading, what do we have to do? Follow, right? It's implied. There is a part for us to play. We are to follow the leader. But the order is important. We don't get out in front. We're not leading ourselves out of temptation. We're following the one who leads us out. And so Jesus' prayer gives us a third option to respond to temptation, not hedonism and not legalism, but humility. And this circles right back to the beginning of this series. To recognize honestly who we are and the limits of our ability. That on our own, we can do nothing. To humbly come to God 
and to say, here is my temptation, and I'm authentically going to say this. I'm not going to put on a mask. I'm not going to pretend to be more holy or righteous than I actually am. I want to sin. God, will you please save me from this? I cannot do it on my own. I need you. That's humility. That's saying I have not arrived. That's saying that in my own power I am incapable. And then it's turning the focus away from myself onto the one who is capable. When we talk about humility, we're not talking about being self-defeatist. We're not saying that, oh well, I'm a sinful human being. As long as I'm on earth, I'm going to continue to sin. We're talking about just being honest about our need for Christ's strength and his forgiveness. I think it's telling that Jesus begins and ends and that we, as we go through this series, begin and end with the idea of humility because it's the core foundation of what prayer is. Beginning and ending, understanding who God is and who we are in relationship to him. And so let me give you a a really specific way to think about or to pray this prayer. And I mean, obviously, Jesus has given you a way to pray this prayer. I'm not saying that I've got a... I shouldn't have said that. Okay. Um, <laughs> let, me, let, me, let me just put this in a slightly different phrasing. Maybe that's a better way to say it. Here's what Jesus is saying. When he says, lead us not into temptation, what's temptation? What is temptation, really? It's a desire right? It's a desire in this context and in most contexts when we use the word temptation, it's a desire for something that we know is not actually good for us. And yet we want it. What if we were to pray that God would transform our desires? That rather than just hating sin that he would give us something better to love. If all we do is approach temptation as that's the thing I hate, and I want to run from that, and we don't have something better to run to, we're going to fail. We are creatures who are made to desire. We can't have a desire vacuum within us. We will want something. The question is not if we will want something, it's what will we want. When I was, uh, when I was teaching in Indiana every year um, at the high school, they used to bring in these motivational speakers. Um, and these guys were great. They would bring the whole student body together into the auditorium, and they'd have these guys come. They, they were always like these different national touring guys, and sometimes they were like former stand-up comedians or former professional athletes, and they were, they were amazing speakers. And they would, they would hold this crowd of ninth through 12th graders, like, totally attention, completely keyed in, which, trust me, is really, really, really hard to do. But they, they would be riveted, and they would listen to these guys, and they were, they were so exciting. And, and it was always the same thing every year. 
every time they would come in, it was the same talk, it was the same purpose, it was the don't do drugs, don't have sex motivational speech, right? And, these, and they, were, they were real funny about it and really exciting, and the kids would love it. And, and, and they, would, they would listen, they'd applaud, and it was really great, and sometimes they'd even go up afterwards and like, get their autograph and stuff like that. And then they'd all go out, and nothing would change. They loved listening to them, made zero impact on their actual lives. Now, why is that? They were keyed in. I mean, they were listening. They were right there with them. I think, and I don't know. I mean, who am I? But I think a part of the problem was all the motivational speaker had to offer was the reasons why you shouldn't, why you should run from. A lot of it was based on fear. If you do these things, these are the bad things that will happen. You're going to end up with a bad disease, or you're going to end up pregnant, or you're going to end up flunking out of school, or whatever. Here's the bad things that will happen if. Rarely, rarely, if ever, did they offer them something to run to, something better, an alternative that could fill the holes in their lives that they were seeking to fill with with drugs or sex or whatever it was. And so as much as they might scare them or, or convince them that those were bad things to put in, those holes still existed. As followers of Christ, as believers in the gospel, we have something more, something greater, something that is better than sin. Something that even though in our twisted and broken minds we believe and we convince ourselves that following our sin will bring us happiness and joy and peace, that Christ holds out to us, no, there is something so much better. Here is a Savior who lived and died for you. Here is a God who is the creator of all of the universe, who is majestic and beautiful and holy. And he desires to have a relationship with you. And why would we continue after this when something so much better is available? So as we pray, instead of just praying, God, help me avoid my sin, Jesus is saying, lead us not into temptation. He's saying, deliver us from evil. He's saying, give us something better transform our desires. Take our temptations and flip those not to desire what is wrong, not to desire what is against you, holy and righteous God. Help us to desire you. Give us a greater, stronger taste and appetite for you. I kept, as I, as I was going through this, I kept coming back to and thinking about this story later again in the book of Matthew, about Peter. Peter was one of Jesus' apostles. This is in Matthew chapter 14. You don't have to turn there. Um, You can read it later if you want to. I'm just going to tell you the story real quickly. Because when I think about this, this is the story that always comes to my mind. And when I think about my own personal efforts to fight against sin and my repeated failures as I tried to do that, and I was always looking for a new strategy or a new plan or five more steps, or something to memorize, or something to repeat to myself, or whatever it was. 
Somebody showed me this story in a way I'd never looked at it before, and I found it extremely helpful. And so as I was preparing, I just kept coming back to this story. Jesus' disciples were in a boat. They'd, they'd spent a day, a long time, Jesus had been ministering to large crowds, and then he sent them out in a boat, and he went away to be alone for a while. And as they're in the boat, in the middle of the night, the wind picks up. It's really heavy, and they're in the middle, far out from the shore. They can't even see land at this point. And they're in this boat, and it's being knocked all around by the wind. They're fighting and struggling just to keep the boat afloat. And they look out, and on the water, you may have heard of this before, or you've at least heard the expression of walking on water, because they see Jesus walking on the water towards them. Now, we've heard that expression before, and it's become kind of this cliche, but could you imagine? And they think what we would all think, either they're delusional, because it's the middle of the night, and they're exhausted, and they're fighting, or maybe it's a trick of the wind and the waves, and it just looks like, or maybe it's a ghost, and they start freaking out, and then Jesus calls out to him, and he says, hey guys, calm down, it's me, it's Jesus. And he's doing something they've never seen before. And Peter, who's one of his disciples, and usually the most vocal one, he calls out, if it's really you, call to me to come out of the boat and walk toward you on the water myself. Now, I don't know what motivated him to do that. There's a big part of me that thinks he really just saw that and thought, that looks so awesome. If I could do that oh my gosh, that is so incredible. Can I, can I do that too? That he gets for a moment just a glimpse of what would it be like to be like Jesus, to get to do what Jesus is doing. This is so incredible. And Jesus says, all right, come on. <clears throat> Again, I, I know you shouldn't always try to put yourself into these stories because I'm not Peter. But I could see myself saying, hey, I would like to do that. I could not in a million years see myself doing what comes next, which is Peter actually got out of the boat. And to me, that's insane. Okay? Um, But he gets out of the boat. And where just three minutes before, he'd been struggling to make sure that he doesn't go down in the boat. Now he's stepping out of the boat. And it works. And he's walking on the water. And he's walking toward Jesus. And you have to imagine that this is the most significant, one of the most amazing, one of the most life-altering moments of Peter's life. I'm standing on water. And then something happens. And I don't know exactly what it is, but in verse 30 it says this, when he saw the wind, he was afraid. Now here's the crazy thing. This whole story started with the wind. The wind was already there. It was crazy. It was the whole reason that they thought they were all going to die. But when he sees Jesus, he forgets about the wind. And he gets out of the boat and starts walking toward him. But at some point in that walk, he sees the wind again. And he takes his eyes off Jesus. And he starts to sink. It says, when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. That there's this moment 
where Peter is walking toward Jesus, and all he's thinking is, there's Jesus, and I want to go to him. And this is amazing. And then he remembers, and he looks down, and suddenly he understands or realizes or thinks about what it is that he is doing. And his eyes go off Jesus, and the focus becomes on himself. The focus becomes on his circumstances. The focus becomes on the fact that this really shouldn't be working. And it stops working. Here's what I have spent and spend so much of my time doing when it comes to the idea of sin. I spend so much time noticing the wind and staring at my feet how am I doing? Am I fighting against sin correctly? Should I put my foot here or here? There's a big wave. How do I avoid that wave? This big gust, is that the one that's going to take me under? I spend so much time focused on my temptation that I take my eyes off of Jesus. The whole goal, the whole purpose is to grow closer to him and to know him more deeply. To be shaped more into his image. And yet we take our eyes off him and turn our eyes on ourselves. But praise God, because that's not the end of this story. As Peter's going down, it says again, verse 30, beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Verse 31 says this, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him. The best way to fight against temptation is to keep our eyes on Jesus. But let us never forget that in our failure, he is the only one who can deliver us. So let us pray that God would give us a stronger desire for him. A desire for him that's stronger than our desire for sin. That that thing that we hate, but we love, that we hate, that we love, that he would give us a bigger love for something so much better. But let us also pray that we would trust in him to reach down and to pull us out. That we would understand that he is the only one who can place our feet on the waves. It's not about us. Let's keep our eyes focused on him. Here's what I want to do. I want to wrap this series up together with a prayer. One of the things I noticed um, as I was going through this, the way Jesus models this sample prayer for us. He says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Give us this day our daily bread. Do you notice that's plural? Is it possible that Jesus didn't intend for this model prayer, for our prayers to totally be isolated individual events? Here's what I want to do. I want to read this together. I want to together as a congregation, as a body of believers, as a church, to call out to God, Pray the Lord's Prayer together. Again, if you uh, are on Matthew, 
chapter 6. If, if you haven't yet, if you need to, open up one of the hardback Bibles, page 811. If you would, I know this might seem awkward or weird, that's okay, because we're all doing it together, so nobody's going to laugh, because we're all being awkward together. So if you would, stand up. <clears throat> and again, we're not just, and I don't want to just be repeating empty phrases, but as we read through this together, we're going to read verses 9 through 13 together out loud, to actually think about what you are saying, to actually say these words as a prayer, as an earnest cry to our Father who loves us. Would you join me with that? We're going to start with our Father in verse 9. If you would, follow along. Let's all read together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Heavenly Father God, you are so good. You are so beautiful. You are so glorious and magnificent, and we are not but you love us and you sent your son to die for us. For some insane reason, we run and we turn away. God, please call us back to yourself. Please give us a bigger vision of you and your goodness and your beauty and help us to follow you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.